questions I'm asking myself are about the relationship between consciousness and the physical world. And I'm trying to understand the classic mind-body problem. How is consciousness related to the physical brain or to physical systems more generally, perhaps computing systems? And that's been a conundrum for centuries. Leibniz understood it, Thomas Huxley understood it, and uh, you know Francis Crick understood it and said we should really study it. And so I, I have been studying it. And what's, what's bothering me and many people in, in our field is that we have so far failed to get a physicalist theory of consciousness, a scientific physicalist theory of consciousness that starts with neural activity or starts with computer programs or some kind of abstract functional architecture and gives us, without any further magic, gives us um, specific conscious experiences like the taste of chocolate or the smell of garlic um, arising in very specific mathematically precise ways from those physical systems or functional systems. And so so I've been working on that and what I'm working on right now and thinking about is trying to start with a theory of consciousness in which consciousness itself is fundamental. So again it's a mathematically precise theory and when we try to come up with a mathematically precise new theory one of the things we have to do is think about the the basic assumptions that we're going to build into the theory. So, you know, every scientific theory uh, starts with certain assumptions, certain axioms, if you will, and after that it tries to build up an explanation of the other things. So, no theory in science can explain everything. We always have a few things that we assume, and then we try to explain everything else in terms of those few things. And in physical theory, for example, we've assumed space and time and matter, where quantum fields are fundamental, and then we can explain chemistry and biology and so forth. And, and we've tried to use that kind of framework, you know, space and time and matter are fundamental, and, and so with those assumptions we can then try to boot up a theory of consciousness that explains exactly what physical systems or computational systems um, must be the taste of chocolate and could not be the taste of vanilla. And we, we, we've not made any progress on, you know, in, in the following sense, there's not a single theory that's been proposed that can explain even one specific conscious experience. There's nothing on the table for something like the taste of vanilla. So I'm saying what to myself, what are the basic assumptions that we would need to build into a theory of consciousness? At what are the minimal assumptions? We, we, we don't want to put too many assumptions on the table. We want the minimal number of assumptions that will give the maximum explanation. So I've been playing with the idea that of what I call a conscious agent that has a set of conscious experiences and can act on those experiences. And I have a mathematical formalism for it. Briefly, it's measurable spaces and Markovian kernels, measurable spaces of conscious experiences and, and Markovian kernels for decisions and actions based on those experiences. Now, one thing that comes out of this formalism is that it's computationally universal. So even though I'm not building in up front in my assumptions anything about learning, memory, problem solving, intelligence, any of that stuff or self, none of those things that we would think should be ultimately part of a theory of consciousness, those are not part of my assumptions. Those are things that I will try to build out of networks of these conscious agents. So these conscious agents just have conscious experiences that they act on you know, with these Markovian kernels. And the idea is that we'll have these interacting social networks of conscious agents and by the dynamics of the networks of conscious agents we'll build up theories of learning and memory and problem solving and intelligence and, and also the notion of a self. So one of the, so I have a, a wonderful team of collaborators and including Chetan Prakash and Manish Singh and Chris Fields working with me on this, Robert Prentner and, and Federico Fagin and Mauro Dariano, really good team. So we're, we're working on this mathematics and, and working on the, the network dynamics and so forth. But one of the big questions is ultimately to solve the mind-body problem, how is consciousness related to the physical world, 
we're going to have to start with this theory of consciousness and show how the physical world arises. Right? We're assuming consciousness is fundamental, not space-time and matter. So we're going to have to get space-time and matter and, and all of modern physics coming out um, from this network of conscious agents. And so the, the question is how to do that. And, and also, is that something um, that is at all compatible with some of the best views in, in modern physics? And so one of the things I've been, our team has been looking at is some of the recent developments in um, physics. In particular, the work of uh, Nima Arkani Hamed um, and his collaborators in which they're saying that um, space-time has been the foundational idea in, in physics. In some sense, physics has been about what happens inside space and time for centuries. And, but, and so space-time has had a good run. It's been a, a foundational assumption in physics. But there are lots of indications from especially quantum theory and, and, and general relativity that space-time cannot be fundamental. As some of the physicists are putting it, space-time is doomed. And that's, that's not my quote, that's their quote. Space-time is doomed. It's not fundamental. There's got to be something deeper that's, that's fundamental outside of space and time that gives rise to space and time. And, and this, this is not some kind of quackery kind of thing where we're saying, well, we're, you know, quantum mechanics is wrong, general relativity is wrong. <clears throat> It's, it's rather, they're, they're beautiful theories, they're very, very powerful, but at, so, at some point there are questions they can't answer or there are problems that arise that cannot be explained. So, so for example, space-time itself, if you try to observe it at finer and finer scales with a bigger and bigger microscope, one problem is eventually um, you know, the energies that are required to look at finer and finer resolution of space-time, when you get down to the Planck scale, the energies create a black hole, and you destroy the very thing that you're trying to look at. And if you add more energy, the black hole get, just gets bigger. And physicists will say, look, if, if space-time is not something that we can measure with absolute precision, then it's not a fundamental concept. We need something more fundamental. And, and another idea that they have is that, you know, in, in quantum theory, you have to have, a, you have an observer and a system, and the observer itself uh, needs to be infinite to have infinite resolution in the measurements that it makes of a system. And so, once again, if you have a, a room and you're trying to do a measurement of something in a room, the, to get more and more precise measurements, the, the observer has to be bigger and bigger, more and more mass. And at some point, the observer itself collapses the room into a black hole. And so there, as they say, there are no local observables in, in quantum theory. And so the question is that I'm dealing with now is, so how can I connect this idea of conscious agents and some of the new theories that physicists are coming up with that try to go beyond space and time? So one thing that they've, they've discovered um, and th this is all fairly new in, in, in physics, the last 10, 15 years as well. They've discovered that when you try to understand what's called the scattering amplitudes, the scattering behavior of particles in the Large Hadron Collider. So you smash protons together at near the speed of light, and if, you know, in many cases you'll actually have quarks and gluons hit each other and spray out. So you might have two gluons coming in and four gluons spraying out. And you, you, know, you see these things in the detectors, and you can talk about the probabilities, or what they call the amplitudes, for these various scattering events. And they've discovered, to, in, to make a long story short, that if you do the computations of these scattering amplitudes in space and time using Feynman diagrams, you get hundreds of pages of math, and it's, um, it's really ugly. And they, you can't do it in real time because you're doing a billion of these collisions per second, roughly. And so they, they started looking and they found that they could collapse these expressions to very, very simple expressions from hundreds of pages down to two or three terms if they don't do the computation in space and time. 
they compute this the geometry of some objects. One of the things they deal with is something called the amplitudehedron. It's a geometric object outside of space and time, and the volumes of various parts of this amplitudehedron actually correspond to the probabilities of these, these scattering events. And this amplitudehedron has symmetries that cannot be expressed in space and time. So the, the, the physicists are discovering that there's this new realm behind space and time. They don't really know what it's about. If you ask them what, what is what is this new world behind space and time about? They don't know. Right now, they're, they're just saying what we're doing is following the math, and the math is telling us that there is this structure outside of space and time, and it makes the, you know, the computation simpler, and it gives us um, insight into symmetries that you can't see in space and time. But what it's about, what is this dynamics outside of space and time about? They don't know. And that's where I'm heading. I'm trying to say maybe this dynamics of conscious agents that we're thinking about could be the realm behind space and time. And so my big project over the next couple of years is to try to really understand this amplitudehedron work and, and the related work that they're doing, uh, what's going on behind space and time. And also to have my team, I have some real physicists on the team, so, so they'll be working on this as well. And, and together we'll try to understand that and then under, try to understand how the dynamics of conscious agents might give rise to this amplitudehedron. And, and I'll, I'll just say the kinds of ideas that, that, that um, I'm looking at. One is the dynamics of conscious agents is a so-called Markovian dynamics. And, and that just means that um, your, your dynamics, what you're going to do at this moment, depends just pretty much on your current state. So whatever your current state is, it governs all the probabilities of what you're going to do at the next decision point. So you have only a finite memory of what you've done in the past, and it's only a finite memory of what you've done in the past that influences your future behavior. And it turns out when you, when you look at these kinds of Markovian dynamics, you can look at their long-term behavior. So we have a step-by-step -step behavior, what conscious agents are doing at each step of their in interaction. Think of, think of their interaction as like a vast social network, like the Twitterverse. There's a bunch of conscious agents, just like a bunch of Twitter users, and they're all interacting with each other. But what they're doing is passing experiences back and forth between each other. And, and so we can look step-by-step -step at our, in the dynamics of what's happening at each step of this social network and its interactions. Or we can look what we call asymptotically. What happens if you look at, essentially, as let the number of interactions goes to infinity, what, what kinds of patterns do you see there? And that's where I'm thinking we might get the connection to uh, physics and the amplitudehedron and so forth, not at the step-by-step -step dynamics of conscious agents. That's too fine a grain. But if we look at the infinite long-term, what they call asymptotic behavior of these social networks of conscious agents, that asymptotic behavior uh, does, it, of course it erases information about all the step-by-step -step stuff, so it's erasing a lot of the detailed information about the social network and how it works. On the other hand, is capturing the long-term patterns, and that's going to be one of the central proposals, is that what physics has been doing is capturing just the long-term asymptotic behavior of these networks of conscious agents, and that's why it hasn't looked conscious at all. Uh, it's, it's sort of like if you're looking, you know, for example, at the freeways in Southern California from, from high up on an airplane. You just see a bunch of little dots moving around, and there's not much evidence of, you know, any consciousness or intelligence. You're just, you know, you're looking at it from a very, very high level, and, and, and you're, you're erasing a lot of information. You don't see all the individual conscious individuals inside the cars and so forth. You just see this pattern of flow of, of little dots on, on streets. And so that's what physics has been seeing. It's, it's not seeing the step-by-step -step dynamics of the conscious agents. It's only seeing a top-level asymptotic description of the long-term behavior of these social networks of conscious agents. And that's, and that's why we haven't actually seen things that look like they're conscious, because we're only seeing the long-term behavior. So that's going to be the kind of connection that, that I'll try to make. And of course, there's a lot of specific mathematical steps that we'll have to take and, and, and to prove that the asymptotic dynamics of these social networks 
precisely fits into the you know the the structure of the amplitudehedron and which then they they have shown can give rise to the interesting features of quantum theory and um, and, and and relativity theory uh, combined. So that's one thing at top level I'm really trying to, to work on. Work flesh out this model of conscious agent networks, look at their dynamics, um, look at the asymptotic behavior of these dynamics, and then plug that into um, hopefully the amplitudehedron. Now that will help, that whole process will help me with another big problem that we've got. And that is, if we take consciousness to be fundamental, there's a big obvious question right up front, which is, what is it about? What, you know, if consciousness is fundamental, there's all this social network of conscious agents out there, and they're interacting, why? Why are there conscious agents, and why do they have to interact? What's, what's this whole thing about? And of course, the, the right answer is, I don't know. Um, so, what I'm trying to do is first come up with some principled ideas that, that are at least plausible for what the dynamics of consciousness is fundamentally about. And so one idea that, that I'm playing with and that my team is, is playing with is Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Gödel showed that if you have um, any su sufficiently complex mathematical system, um, and that system has a set of axioms, there will be truths that are consistent with those axioms, that, that are true given those axioms, but cannot be proved from, from that set of axioms. So there are unprovable truths. And if you add those new truths that you couldn't prove before, add them in as axioms to a bigger system, then Gödel's theorem says there will be yet new truths that can't be proven even with within your bigger system of, of axioms. And what, what this effectively means is that the exploration of mathematical structure is in principle endless. There will be no end to the exploration of what we can do in mathematics. And, and so why is that interesting in the, in the context of a theory of consciousness and conscious agents? Well, it turns out that conscious, consciousness and mathematics are intimately linked. There's a field called psychophysics that studied conscious experiences since 1860. And one thing that we've discovered in our psychophysical studies in the lab and the mathematical models is that consciousness is highly structured. Conscious experiences are highly structured. And we can write down mathematical models that, that predict not only judgments of similarity between various like colors, but also can predict precisely what three-dimensional structures you will see and when you will see them. It's mathematics through and through. Um, I'm not saying that consciousness just is mathematics. It's more like consciousness and mathematics are like a living organism and the bones. Bone, the bones are the mathematics and consciousness is a living organism. But mathematics and consciousness are intimately linked. And, and that's one reason why we can hope to build a mathematical model of consciousness and, and conscious agents. Um, the mathematics is a genuine insight into the structural aspects of consciousness, but of course there's more to consciousness than just the mathematics. So that's where Gödel's theorem comes in. It says that the, the structures that, that consciousness can take and these conscious agents can explore are endless. And so one idea is that the the goal of consciousness and of these conscious agents is endless exploration of all the possible varieties of conscious experiences and their structures. So that's, and that, you know, it may or may not be true, but at least it's a principle that seems deep enough that it's a plausible candidate for the answer to the question, what is it all about? What is the dynamics of consciousness all, all about? So that's, that's one direction that we'll also be exploring. But suppose that we hit a, hit a dead end there, and that idea turns out to be wrong. Gödel's theorem, as interesting as it is, turns out not to be an adequate um, foundation for the you know our dynamics of conscious agents. Then what we may do, what we may have to do, is if we can take our theory of conscious agents, show how it plugs into, say, the amplitudehedron, and then eventually into quantum you know, field theory and, you know, and general relativity, then what we may be able to do is reverse engineer things. We can say, 
Once we know how to map from conscious agent dynamics into modern physics, can we reverse that map? Can we take what we know about modern physics and its dynamics and pull it back into the realm of conscious agents and say what kinds of dynamics does would, would get pulled back? And that may then focus our attention on certain kinds of conscious agent dynamics that may then help us to grope toward the answer to the question, what is consciousness all about? I got my Bachelor of Arts in um, Quantitative Psychology from UCLA. And while I was there, I um, took some classes on artificial intelligence and also on um, neuroscience of vision that really caught my interest. And one class sort of pulled those together. I, it was a graduate class that I took in which we looked at the work of David Marr. He was bringing artificial intelligence ideas together with neuroscience ideas to study human vision. And his idea was to be mathematically precise, to come up with mathematical theories that you could actually implement in a computer for things like seeing in 3D, object perception, and so forth, object recognition. And as an undergraduate, I thought this was wonderful. This is this is someone who's using mathematics and computers and artificial intelligence to solve problems um, in human vision and eventually to build robotic vision systems. And I was very interested in the relationship of you know computing to humans. Are humans just computers? Are we more than computers? What's the relationship between human cognition and computation? Um, and so that seemed to be a, a wonderful fit. So I, I was fortunate I applied and, and got accepted and went and became a student at M uh, David Marr was David Marr was at MIT in the artificial intelligence laboratory and the what's now the brain and cognitive science department and so I went there and, and Marr and David Marr and Whitman Richards um, became my co-advisors um, and I had, Marr I got to work with for only about 14 months while I was there because he he died young at around age 35 of, of leukemia, unfortunately. Um, it was a, a great loss, personally, and, and to the field. But I did have that chance to work with him and the wonderful team that he'd assembled around him. And, and so I got to really you know, jump in and see what artificial intelligence can do, how far it can go in understanding human vision. And uh, I completed my, my PhD there. Uh, and working on, on human vision. And then I went to UC Irvine um, as a professor of cognitive sciences in, in 1983. And I've been a professor at, at UC Irvine in, in cognitive sciences ever since, for the last uh, almost 37 years now. And so now my own research then has focused on both specific problems in human vision um, because it's, it's good to take on specific problems if you're really trying to understand, you know, are people machines, you know, and, and, and how is human nature related to computation, it's good to jump in and try to build computational devices that, that model human nature and see how far you can go. And it turns out you can go quite far. In fact, I would say the, the computational approach, you know, computer science, artificial intelligence, um, functionalist approach, can pretty much do, it makes me happy in pretty much every aspect of cognitive science. Learning, memory, problem solving, sensory perception, language development. Um, there's almost no area of cognitive science that isn't just beautifully treated by these functionalist computer kinds of models. There's only one area that has been a problem, and that is conscious experiences. Something as simple as the taste of chocolate. Then there's another attitude toward things, and that is to say, it may be the case that everything I believe is false. It's quite possible that everything I believe is false. I can't rule that possibility out. But if I'm right about anything, it's right, I, I'm right that I have experiences, that I'm having a headache right now, or that I'm experiencing uh, a chair in front of me, or a table. As, as philosophers say, I'm having an experience as of a table, or an experience as of a chair, or as of a spoon. So I'm having these as of 
experiences. And, you know, so if I look ahead of myself and I see, you know, a table, I'm having an experience as of a table. If I close my eyes, then my experience changes. I no longer have an experience as of a table. I have an experience as of a mottled gray field, sort of dark gray mottled field. And then when I open my eyes, I have once again an experience as of a table. And from this point of view, um, if I ask my physicalist colleagues um, about what they're saying, they'll say, well, that table is what's real. It's there all the time. And I say, so I, I understand when I open my eyes, I have an experience as of a table. And when I close my eyes, that experience disappears. But what, what you're saying to me is that even when my eyes are closed, there really is a table that exists, even if no perceiver were to, to look at it. And that table not only exists, but it has roughly the shape and texture and other properties, you know, the colors that I see. Um, now, that's a, that's a pretty strong claim. I mean, I'm only claiming that when I open my eyes, I have an experience as of a table. And when I close my eyes, I don't claim anything about a table. And so from this point of view, the physicalist who says, no, there is a, a real table there, is making a much stronger claim that I'm claiming. I'm only saying I have an experience as of a table. Why else would I believe in a table if I didn't have experiences? And so there's this other framework, this other point of view then in which the physicalist is making the, the stronger and more tendentious claim. And, and I can put it this way. Um, the physicalist is claiming that, that, that physical objects have definite values of physical properties like position, momentum, spin, even if no creature observes. That's a strong claim. And it might even sound like it's a non-scientific claim, right? They're claiming that when no observation is being made, these physical objects still exist and have definite values of properties like their position or their, their velocities or their shapes and so forth. So that's, that's more than I'm claiming if I just take conscious experiences as being fundamental. All I'm claiming is that I, I open my eyes, I have an experience as of a table, um, and when I close my eyes, who knows what's happening in objective reality. It's a real strong claim to say that there really is that shape with, that, you know, with a particular momentum and, and position and so forth. So... Of course, now you can turn it around. You can say you know, that I'm claiming that um, if consciousness is fundamental and, and the physical world isn't fundamental, then I'm claiming that there is no table when I don't observe. There is no, no object with a definite position, momentum, and spin. And so, uh, and that seems also to be a non-scientific claim. How can you claim um, something about a physical object and its properties when nothing is observing it. What, how can you possibly have an experiment to test that? Well, it turns out, I mean, this was a debate, by the way, this is not original with me. This is this kind of debate um, about do physical objects have, do they exist and have definite properties like position um, when they're not observed? This was a debate that, that Einstein was really pushing back in the 20s, 1920s and 1930s. He asked the question, you know, it was because of quantum mechanics. He was asking the question, does the moon exist um, when no one observes? It, it, it seemed to Einstein that quantum mechanics was saying the moon doesn't exist when no one observes. At least the, the, the interpretation of quantum mechanics that Niels Bohr and Heisenberg and others, the Copenhagen interpretation, was, was suggesting that. And Wolfgang Pauli was quite impatient with Einstein. He, he said, look, you know, the kinds of questions that Einstein's asking are are like asking how many angels dance on the head of a pin. How many can dance on the head of a pin? Well, you know, who cares? And this really is sort of a metaphysical thing that's, that, that couldn't be answered with experiment anyway, so why, why bother with it? Well, so that was Polly's attitude about it, but it turned out, uh, and, and Polly was, of course, a, a towering genius, uh, one of the greatest physicists of the 20th century. It turns out, though, that he was wrong about this. This is a question that we can ask and answer experimentally. A physicist named John Bell in 1963 
found a series of experiments that, that you could do um, that could test whether something like, uh, you know, an atom has a definite value of position or, or momentum or spin even when it's not observed. And it sounds impossible. How could you have a series of experiments that definitely tells you an answer to this question of does something exist with definite values of properties um, even when you don't look at it? But what Bell discovered was that you could test something called local realism. So there's two parts to it. Realism is the claim that physical objects have definite values of position, momentum, and spin, and so forth when they're not observed. So that's realism. Definite values even when they're not observed. And locality is the additional assumption that those definite values um, of the physical properties have influences that propagate no faster than the speed of light through space. So that's locality. And so Bell proposed this set of experiments and, and something called Bell's inequality is a really beautiful theorem that he came up with. And it took uh, a couple decades, but we, we got the technology roughly in the, in the 1980s and then started doing the experiments. And the, the experiment has been done many, many times. And many times because people are flummoxed, they're blown away by the answer. The answer is local realism is false. So that has been established by experiment repeatedly. Local realism is absolutely false. Now, the, the, but there's two aspects to it. There's either, it could be that either, either realism is false, particles or objects don't have definite values of their properties when they're not observed, or it could be that locality is false, um, you know, influences can propagate faster than the speed of light, or it could be that both are false, you know, that, that both locality and realism are, are false. But then there was another theorem that, that in 1963 and 1964 that Bell and then two gentlemen named Koken and Specker, two physicists, Koken and Specker, proved. Um, and that's a different one. It's, it's about realism and what they call non-contextuality. So it's not about local realism. It's about non-contextual realism. So lo local locality is off the table. It's, it's no longer an issue. And, and the question here is, um, is local, not, not local realism, is non-contextual realism true? And so non-contextual realism is the claim that physical objects like an atom has a definite position um, or spin or momentum or whatever it might be when it's not observed. And second, that these definite values do not depend, their, their, their prior nature does not depend on how you choose to measure. So how you, the, the kind of measurement that you make does not in any way alter the, these prior values, these, these pre-existing values. So that's non-contextual realism. And it turns out that um, our best theories, quantum theory, predicts quite clearly that non-contextual realism is false. So local realism is false, non-contextual realism is false, and uh, that leads, leaves it quite open that realism itself is, quite, it is false. So if, if realism is false, now that, that, that raises a question. Maybe there's a couple of questions that people ask. Well, is that true only for microscopic objects? You know, electrons and quarks and so forth. Well, we, we don't do this too much with quarks, but electrons and, and protons and neutrons, yeah, photons. But, but not more macroscopic objects. And it's turning out that this border between the microscopic and the macroscopic first is very suspicious. You know, no one's been ever able to make a principled you know, size or scale distinction. You know, what size is microscopic and what scale is macroscopic. And recent experiments have been showing that we can put bigger and bigger systems of, of atoms some getting pretty big now, thousands of atoms, and put them in quantum superpositions so that the quantum effects that the Koch and Specker and Bell inequalities are, are, are dealing with um, are, are true of these, these systems that involve thousands of atoms. So these are huge molecules now with thousands of atoms, things that are getting close to the size of a virus. And 
we suspect that as we continue to you know develop technology, we'll find that um, this boundary between the microscopic and the macroscopic is not nearly so firm as, as we think. So, or as you know, as, as as you might think. So, so the bottom line is, local realism is false. Non-contextual realism is false, and. So what does that mean about the notion of public physical objects? Right? And, and what do we mean in science about like third-person science and public physical objects? Intuitively, what we talk about is um, the way science works and the way it's in some sense objective is, you know, I, I can watch, uh, you know, a ball rolling down an inclined plane I can see that ball, I can measure its acceleration and, and compute, you know, the effects of gravity on it. And then you can look at that very same ball, that one and the same ball, and um, make your own independent measurements of that very same public physical ball. And if your measurements and my measurements agree, then we can start to have objective science. So there's this notion of public physical objects and third-person science in the sense that independent observers can do scientific experiments on the same object um, and and come to some kind of agreement. Now sometimes the agreement isn't absolute, like if we're measuring um, the length of a meter stick, uh, it, it turns out um, if you're moving relative to me, if you're moving fast relative to me, then you will get a different length for the meter stick than I will. There's something called the Lorentz um, contraction that, that happens. The news. And so, so you but but we can take that into account. We can take the um, those kinds of things into account and and have a dictionary between the the distances that you measure and the distance that I measure. So if if they're same up to the Lorentz contraction, then we would still say that we agree. And even in you know special relativity, um, the space-time interval is something that we would all agree with on the exact number. So so. That's the, the general kind of notion that, that we have of public physical objects and third-person science. But now, the idea that local realism is false and non-contextual realism is false leads me to, to argue that, in fact, realism is false. So I want to propose that realism is false. And what we're seeing is more like a user interface or a virtual reality headset. So think about... Um, virtual reality game of tennis. So you're playing VR tennis with a friend, you both have your headset and bodysuits on, and, and you see your friend's avatar on a tennis court, and you, you see his tennis racket, and you, you're, you're holding a, a green tennis ball, and you throw up the tennis ball, and you guys start playing. Now you both will say, yeah, you, 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 know, you hit the tennis ball to me, then I hit the same tennis ball back to you. But is your friend seeing exactly the same tennis ball that you're seeing? Well, of course not. There's no public tennis ball. You have some photons being sprayed to your eye by your headset, and those photons are, are causing you, your visual system, to create your own perception of what you would call a green tennis ball. Your friend has a headset on, and his headset is spraying photons to his eye, and he's creating his own uh, his visual system is creating his own green tennis ball perception. Now, it turns out that both of those perceptions are coordinated by something else, namely a supercomputer that's sending the photons to both headsets, or you know, causing both headsets to work in coordination. But notice that there's no, in this example, it looks like there's a public object, namely a green tennis ball, but there isn't. There is my tennis ball that I perceive and that disappears when I close my eyes and my friend's tennis ball that, that, that she perceives and, and disappears when, when she closes her eyes. And there's no public tennis ball in this example. And so, and, and all the things that we would do to say that objects really exist even when they're not perceived um, hold here in virtual reality. So we might say, well, look, I know that this table exists because I close my eyes and my friend Joe can see the table even when I don't look. Or I can close my eyes and I can reach over and touch the table and I can feel it even when I'm not seeing it. Or I can take, you know, this spoon, I can close my eyes, drop it, I know exactly where to look when I open my eyes and, and there the spoon is. 
Well, you can do all those things in virtual reality. You can take that, I can take my green tennis ball in virtual reality, I can close my eyes, drop the tennis ball, and say, I know where I'm going to see it, I need to, and I can open my eyes, turn my headset down, and I will see the tennis ball right where I predicted. That doesn't mean that the tennis ball exists and has any physical properties when it's not perceived. It just means that there is some objective reality. So I'm not denying that there is an objective reality. There is some objective reality that exists independent of whether or not I perceive it. But that objective reality is not space and time or anything inside space and time. Those are just human forms of perception. And that's what I think quantum theory is telling us. It's just telling us local realism is false, non-contextual realism is false. It's telling us realism is false, at least what we call realism of objects in space and time. They don't exist except when they're perceived. They don't have their properties except when they're perceived like position and momentum and spin because space-time is not fundamental. And that's what the physicists are now telling us, like Nima Arkani Hamed. Space-time is doomed. There is an objective reality, but it's not space and time. It's a deeper reality outside of space and time. Space-time is emergent and it's not fundamental. So it's a natural question to ask, here's a cognitive neuroscientist talking about consciousness being fundamental reality, not space and time, and that's surely treading on the, the turf of physics. So what, what do physicists think about this? Do they just dismiss this out of hand or, or, or what? And there's an interesting history of um, physicists and their ideas about consciousness. The early, some of the early quantum physicists um, were, were very interested in consciousness. Schrodinger was interested in it, Wigner and von Neumann. Wigner actually thought that consciousness was fundamental, and, and, and von Neumann said that as well. There's various interpretations as to whether he was serious about it or not, but he did talk about consciousness being fundamental. And so there, are, there were a number of physicists who, who said that. But uh, among modern physicists, um, I would say that, that most simply do not take th these ideas that consciousness could be fundamental very seriously at all. I think that they would be dismissed pretty much out of hand. So that, you know, and, and, and that, you know, the idea that there must be, that space-time is doomed, that there's something beyond space and time doesn't, of course, entail that that something is consciousness. Now, some physicists are proposing um, that that consciousness might be a state of matter. I mean, I, you know, Max Tegmark has the, the notion of um, a perceptronium, I believe, or something like that. Where so there are certain states of matter that could um, be give rise to conscious experience, and, <clears throat> and that idea is is very different from the kind of idea that I'm. I'm proposing. Uh, I'm not proposing that consciousness is a special state of matter. I, I'm saying that consciousness is fundamental outside of space and time, that space and time itself, and what we call physical objects and their matter inside space and time, are actually emergent or interface descriptions uh, of what's going on in this dynamics of conscious agents. So, so I'm saying something very, very different than, than Tegmark. Now, um, some other physicists um, are proposing other models of what's behind space and, and time. Um, again, not consciousness, maybe quantum information, quantum bits and quantum gates. And so I, I certainly understand why a physicist um, would not feel inclined to, to, to jump all the way in and say consciousness is, is fundamental. The proof will be in what, what we can do. Right? If we can get a mathematically precise theory of, of conscious agents and the network dynamics of those conscious agents, and we can show that it gives, it plugs in, say, to the amplitudehedron that Nima Arkani Hamed is, has been looking at, and gives us new predictions, um, then, and only then, would I expect, you know, would I hope that you know, physicists would take this stuff seriously. I mean, I certainly understand them not taking it seriously until I make some really new concrete prediction that, that affects physics. So, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm on board with that. Now, the, you know, what's interesting, one, I heard a talk recently by Nima Arkani Hamed, 
And at the very end of the talk, he, he said something that he said was just speculative on his part. He, you know, he's just playing with an idea. He, you know, he didn't know where it's going to go. But he said that maybe one of the problems that they're having in trying to get, you know, a, a deeper understanding of physics that resolves some of the paradoxes between quantum theory and, and, and gravity is the distinction, the division between the the subject and the object, between the observer and the observed. He, he said that, that somehow that division, which is required by quantum mechanics, is a real source of problems because the, the, the subject or the observer has to effectively be infinite if you're going to have any precise measurements in quantum theory. And that, that has to do with the idea that there are all these quantum fluctuations, and if you're trying to measure something to infinite precision, um, and you have a finite measuring device, then um, the, the quantum fluctuations will perturb the measuring device, and, it, and will make the measuring device give you wrong answers um, by the time you get to the 50th decimal point, or the 100th decimal point, or 10 to the 100th decimal point, or whatever it might be. And so that, that's, for them, a real problem. Um, this division of the whole universe into the subject and the object, the observer and the observed. And, and so he was saying maybe we're going to have to figure out a way to either get rid of that division or multiple ways of doing that division. There's something about the division between the observer and the observed will have to be changed. And what's interesting to me is that in this theory of conscious agents, that's precisely what I do the observer and the observed distinction goes away. All are the same mathematical structure. All are conscious agents. And it, and it turns out in, in this dynamical theory, when, when agents interact, they actually form new agents. So you can have very, very simple agents with very, very few conscious experiences, maybe only two. Uh, so we might call that a one-bit agent. It only has two experiences. But they can interact to create two-bit agents and four-bit agents and all the way up to however big you want. So you can have these really complicated agents and, and so you, you get and, and what agents are really observing are other agents. So there's the division be between subject and object is, is not this fundamental distinction. It's, it's the observer and observed are all the same kind of thing and the, and the boundary between them is completely fluid. I'm, I'm actually collaborating with several mathematical physicists right now and we're working to get some kind of predictions that will grab the interest of, of this community. One of the biggest influences on me, the person who got me into cognitive neuroscience and got me into the study, was David Marr. Um, his, his writing was powerful, his ideas were, were brilliant, and he really grabbed my attention when I was only in my early 20s, like 21 or 22 years old. Yeah, maybe 21 and grabbed my attention, and, and when I read his work, I realized this is what I want to do. And so, so it was a, a great privilege to work with David Marr, and, and then with Whitman Richards. Whitman Richards um, was my co-advisor um, while Marr was alive, and then after Marr died, Whitman Richards was my, my sole advisor, and, and he, he was just a, a wonderful, wonderful advisor. He gave me the freedom to pursue what I wanted to. He gave me feedback. He, traded, he treated me as an equal. <clears throat> he treated my ideas with respect. And we, we were friends for decades afterwards until his death just a, a couple years ago. Um, so, so Whitman had a, a long-term impact. Another impact on me was a, a, a mathematician named Bruce Bennett, who uh, was a professor of algebraic geometry here at UC Irvine. He took me under his wings when uh, I first came here to UCI, and he and I collaborated for 15 or 20 years, uh, almost 20 years. He, uh, he taught me a lot of mathematics. I'm not a mathematician. I'm not talented in that area. So he was very, very patient and, and taught me a lot of mathematics and, and worked on the mathematical problems um, with me together. Chetan Prakash, who's a mathematical physicist, also has had a big influence on me and has, has um, picked up where, where Bruce left off, and he's continued to collaborate with me and teach me mathematics and, and be a, a real help. I would say also um, 
More recently, um, Federico Fagine has, has been a big influence. And Federico uh, Fagine is probably um, a name that most people haven't heard of that they, they should know. He was the, the young genius at Intel um, who invented the microprocessor. He's the man that did it. He, he helped perfect the silicon gate array technology. And then he was the first guy in his mid-20s, mid to late 20s, who figured out how to actually build a microprocessor, a, a computer on a chip. He's the, he's the guy that did it. So he was the genius at Intel. He went on, he, he um, invented the Z80 um, and the 8080, and he, his team also, uh, at Zy he did Zilog Corporation. He was the CEO of it. He was also the CEO of Synaptics, where they developed the touchpad. So his team invented the touchpad. So, so Federico is, is a genius. Um, and he's also very interested in consciousness. And, and he heard me give a talk six or seven years ago um, on my mathematical model of consciousness. And, and he came up and struck a conversation with me. And we've been friends ever since. For the last six years, we, we collaborate. Um, closely. Um, he, his ideas are similar to mine. We're on the same page, but they're different enough that it's interesting. So we, we have um, strong debates on the details, which is very, very good. Um, and, and Federico has helped me to uh, assemble a team that, that he's funding. So my, you know, talk about influence, it, my, my research is so far out there that standard fund, funding agencies uh, it would be difficult to get the National Science Foundation or the NIH to, to fund this, but, but Federico Fagin um, is funding it um, from his own foundation, the Fagin Foundation, and for which I'm exceedingly grateful. And, um, but it's not, it's not the funding that's the primary thing, although it's very, very helpful. It's, it's Federico's ideas as well that are extremely influential and very, very helpful to me. So now in terms of some other peers in philosophy of mind, I'm, I'm quite impressed with the work of, of Dave, Dave Chalmers. Uh, I like his thorough analysis, his mathematical sophistication, his philosophical sophistication, and his non-doctrinaire approach. I, I like how he surveys the various possibilities and looks at the pros and cons of the various possibilities. I, I never see him getting dragged into ad hominem kinds of debates. I, he, he always keeps it where it should be, which I think is not personal tax, but really just focusing on the strengths and weaknesses of various ideas. So I've been heavily influenced by, by Dave Chalmers and, and, and his writing, and I like to, to read his stuff. And, and so, yeah, he's been a, a, a major influence on me. Um, someone who, who might not like my work would be, there, there are a number of people who would disagree with me. Uh, I think Dan Dennett, um, disagrees with me. I, you know, he he is into um, conscious illusionism. So I talk about conscious realism. I think consciousness, conscious experiences are real and maybe the foundational reality. And Dan Dennett is saying no, space, time, and matter, physical stuff, whatever that might be, is fundamental. And what we call consciousness, the conscious experiences, in particular, phenomenal conscious experiences, the what it is like aspect of consciousness is merely an illusion that, that, that comes about when certain processes in our brain are monitoring the activity of other processes in our brain. And the way they monitor and the way that they, the language in which they couch what they're monitoring um, is what leads to the illusion of consciousness. So, so, you know, Keith Frankish and Dan Dennett and others are sort of spearheading this illusionism approach. And my own attitude is, you know, it's not my approach and I, I disagree with it, but I'm glad that they're mapping out that part of the conceptual space. It's, it's very important to have different points of views and, and thinking about their ideas forces me to rethink certain aspects of my own approach. So for me, yeah, we disagree, but I think it's a profitable and, and, and useful kind of disagreement. And one other person I should mention that was a big influence um, was Francis Crick. Um, he was the one who sort of gave permission for scientists to jump in and study consciousness. When I was a graduate student at MIT, I was interested in consciousness, but it wasn't something that you could really talk about and, and study. It just wasn't considered a, 
a proper subject of science. It was a little bit too woo-woo. Um, and so, so I, um, I, I studied it, but I didn't call it that. I, was very I published a book with my collaborators, Bruce Bennett and Chetan Prakash, called Observer Mechanics in 1989. It's effectively a mathematical model of consciousness, of dynamics of consciousness. And that, but we, we just called it uh, Observer Mechanics and left the consciousness out. But within a few years, um, it was perfectly fine to talk about consciousness. And, and that was largely due to, to um, the influence of Francis Crick. And Francis also was sort of the intellectual leader of a, a group in Southern California that I was lucky to participate in called the Helmholtz Club. And the Helmholtz Club brought together, you know, thinkers and, and, and professors from various universities in Southern California. And we all met at UC Irvine, um, at the, the University Club at UC Irvine, which was fortunate for me because that's where I am, is at UC Irvine. So I could just walk to the Helmholtz Club meetings. And for nearly 20 years, we met on a roughly a monthly basis, um, you know, with some breaks. And, and a group of a dozen, 15 of us were the, the core group, and we would bring guests and bring in outside speakers. And that was what we were after. We were after understanding this hard problem of consciousness. Now, Francis was looking at it from a hard-nosed neurobiological point of view. He, what are the, the neural circuits um, and the activities that cause conscious experiences? He was hoping to demystify consciousness just like he dis demystified life when he and Watson discovered the structure of DNA. So he was looking for the double helix of neuroscience that would demystify um, consciousness. And it, it was an, a, gr a great pleasure and, and a real treasure to watch him at work, to see him grappling with the neuroscience data, questioning researchers about their latest findings, and then trying to come up with a model of how neuro activity could create conscious experience. Well, I'm not going to be here forever. I, I need to help the next generation to understand the ideas and carry on when, when I'm no longer able to do it. So there is the balance that we all have to strike up between how much time do we spend communicating the ideas and how much time do we spend having fun exploring the ideas. Because that's really, for me and for most scientists, that's what it, it's like climbing a mountain. You climb it because it's there. We're, we're exploring these ideas just because it's incredibly fun to explore them. Um, so so, but sometimes it's time to stop having that fun, and 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 I do enjoy the communication process, but it's it's different than the exploration of the ideas. My audience, I try in my public communication, like in podcasts and so forth, to communicate to a a broad, intelligent, but non-specialist audience. Uh, so I would hope that um, intelligent lower division undergraduates could understand what I'm saying. That would be, that's my goal, because that, that's often my audience, is intelligent uh, undergraduate age, lower division undergraduate age students. And so I would hope that I could be communicating to that group. But on the other hand, I'm really hoping to catch the really brilliant minds who actually know high-level physics or mathematics and could actually push this thing to, to, to heights that I can't push it. So I, I try to have a dual thing to make it interesting to a broad audience, but have enough beef that um, it's not dismissed by people who are really talented. And they, they see, oh, there are some really good ideas here, and maybe I could actually find a real project in this. So I try to, try to get both. Over the next five years, I do have a plan. I'm planning to have, um, to first to officially retire from the University of California, Irvine this July. So I'll, I'll, I plan to go emeritus. Um, so I'll still be on the faculty, but I'll be emeritus and I still plan to bring in grant money and to continue to do the research. My, my hope is now to have far more time to think. Right now, as, as anybody who's a professor knows, you spend a lot of time teaching in committee work, writing grants and reviewing grants and all this stuff. So all of the the extraneous duties disappear, and that's what I'm. That's one reason why I'm retiring. Those extraneous duties disappear. I'll have more extended time to actually sink deeply into the ideas, especially when I'm trying to make this connection, which is my goal, between the long-term behavior of conscious agent networks and perhaps the amplitudehedron, or these these interesting structures that physicists are finding that seem to be prior to space-time and may give rise to space-time. 
so so my goal is to to work very deeply and with my team with with Chaitan Prakash and the the team uh, that Federico Fagin is, is funding uh, Chris Fields and 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 others Manish Singh to to really go into this uh, with Robert Prentner as well and and try to get a mathematically rigorous theory over the next four or five years. And my hope also is it is to get this far enough along that even if we don't have the whole thing worked out, the ideas are promising enough, worked out well enough, that I feel like it's worth writing a book that focuses on consciousness and the idea that consciousness is fundamental. Because, I mean, even if I can't bring that all the way home, I would like to bring it part of the way and then you know, entice with a new book, entice a new generation um, that that's mathematically sophisticated and and, and and sophisticated in physics to then bring it all the way home and and do it bef you know quickly enough that I can read it. So I, I want to read this. I want to know the answer. That's what that's my real motivation. I want to know the answer to this thing. You know, the hard problem of consciousness and is the idea that consciousness is fundamental and could give rise to physics. Does that pan out? I really am exceedingly interested in that. And if I don't get it, I need to get a book out there to have brighter people work on it so I can read their papers. So that's my goal.